Welcome to the STEM Tea Podcast. And today I will let our esteemed guest uh, introduce himself. But the podcast is a place where we learn a little bit about mentoring, STEM education, diversity, equity, inclusion, and how it fits into science. And mm -hmm. we can kind of have a better sense of belonging around the topics that are interesting to the scientific community. So uh, could you please introduce yourself formally and then tell me what you'd like for me to call you? I am Dr. Alexander Hutchison. Professionally, most people where I work call me Hutch. Um, if I were to go out to a, a conference or something, most people would call me Alexander. But I'm comfortable with either one. Uh, they both make me quite happy. Just don't call me Al or Alex. I don't like either of those. <laughs> okay, that's perfect. So um, first, uh, I'll call you Hutch. Uh, All right. <laughs> so uh, could you tell me a little bit more about who you are as far as your work in the science space? I know that you're in charge of several journals. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I'll start with you know what my background's in. My PhD is in exercise physiology, and my specialty was looking at overtraining syndrome in athletes, which is predominantly driven by the immune system. So it's a suppression of the immune system with just too much chronic stress. And then from there, I went to be an assistant professor at a very small school in San Antonio. It just wasn't a tremendously good fit, and I was missing doing research. I had very little resources there to get anything done. So I went back, and with one of my PhD mentors, did a three-year NIH-funded postdoctoral fellowship at UT Health in Houston. And my mentor, who taught me everything about immunology for my PhD, uh, worked in AIDS, HIV immunology. So I spent three years working in a lab there where we were really looking at the, the beginning stages of the disease. Um, from there, I got another professor position at another school, also in San Antonio, uh, University of Incarnate Word. Uh, was there for about three years. Then I never had a really good uh, feel for academia. It didn't, it didn't ever work very well for me. There's a lot of, of very wishy-washy stuff that happens in terms of how people set up their curriculum, the things that they let students get away with, giving extra credits, never been something I'm an advocate for, giving credit for showing up to class. I've never been one to take attendance. So those kinds of things always drove me crazy. And um, I try to make excuses that it was this school, that school, or the next school. But in all three instances, uh, I pretty much flamed out after about three years of being a professor. And the only consistent thing was me. So I don't know that it's really academia that's the problem, although I, I would say that it certainly has some problems, but certainly I didn't fit very well within the academic model. So I gave it one last try. It was another another professor position at Our Lady of the Lake University, and I actually got to an associate professor, which was pretty cool. But after three years, I was pretty burnt out there too. And then uh, my wife had an opportunity to get a big promotion and moved us to Dallas, so we took that two years ago. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that information. One of the things that I was curious about also is the kind of career change that you decided to go to. And, you know, it's not often talked about like how to get into being an editor, not talked about how do you kind of climb up to the ladder to be like an editor in chief and then also a senior editor. Could you explain a little bit about what you're doing now and what does that look like? So a senior editor is below the level of editor in chief. They have these nebulous titles that they, they make you sound important when you're really not, but a senior editor is is going to be somebody who's going to do a lot of the legwork that the editor-in-chief doesn't have time to do. So one of the main things that any editor is going to do for his or her journal 
is to um, acquire content. So we're like any other business. We have to have content. And that content pays for our salaries in one of two ways. It's either going to be open access, which means that the authors who are going to publish with us have to pay an article publication fee, which means that we get money up front that we can then have cash in hand to do the other things that we need to run the business. Or the other way, the more classic way, is that you're on a subscription-based model, which means that the, the articles are not free to download, which is what you get for open access. But then it's the consumer that actually has to pay for access to those journals. So that's the classic method that has been out of favor for quite some time, and I think for good reason. I don't want to get too far in the weeds on that, but we spent a lot of time talking about open access. So what I predominantly was doing initially was as a commissioning editor was getting people to submit their papers to our journal. Um, and so I have two jobs there. One is to give volume, uh, but the other is to make sure that the quality is, is staying high because if you only have volume and no quality, then your impact factor plummets. Uh, then it's impossible to attract people to actually submit their papers to your journal. So that's, that's what a, a senior editor, and that's basically what an editor-in-chief does. The difference being that an editor-in-chief, once those papers are actually submitted and they go through the peer review process, or actually even before we send them out for peer review, we put them through an editorial process of our own to see if it's, number one, in scope for our journal. Uh, two, if it's of high enough quality that we deem it good enough to send out to reviewers, because remember, reviewers are unpaid volunteers who are very busy people. And the last thing I want to do is send them a rag that they're not going to want to look at because they're going to see that and say, why are you sending me this? Gotcha. Clearly, you guys are not vetting these papers very well. So I have to make sure that it's of, of good enough quality to even send out to a set of reviewers, uh, and then we'll see what they get back. But it's as an editor-in-chief of General Cellular Physiology, I am the final arbiter of whether or not that paper is going to be accepted in our journal, regardless of what the reviewers say. Now, they obviously are guiding me in my decision. And rarely do I go against them, but it is final, my final decision. So then um, one of the things I'm really curious about is, because um, you cannot give us a day-to-day -day of, of like what an editor-in-chief does, what an editor does. And then how do you also manage being in multiple journal? Seems like a lot of extra work. And I'm curious about why do you do that? Uh, I have no choice. Uh, it's it's what my bosses gave me. But it's, it's no different than being a professor. I mean, you have... I mean, where I was in, in a non-research institution, we had four classes we taught every semester. So it's four different preps and you have four different things you have to keep in your head and multiple students you have to talk to and you're on committees, you know, and then you have to juggle trying to get yourself promoted. When the athletic department asks you to, to meet with some parents, you have to meet with them too. So you wear a million hats. Yeah. If you're any, if you're any kind of a, a good employee at any level, you're going to be wearing multiple hats. Gotcha. And you got to be able to hop from one stone to another pretty quickly. So it's not difficult to, to be in charge of different journals necessarily. It's just time consuming. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So how does my traditional day start? I usually will plop my butt down around 7.30 and go straight to JCP and look at my inbox. And I'll have anywhere from 8 to 10 papers that have been submitted and have gone through our initial pre-screening process to weed out what we deem to be suspicious papers, potentially paper mill papers, which is about... Unfortunately, half or more of the submissions that we get, that's done with an AI algorithm that I never even see. Then the papers that come to me, I one at a time go through them. I check for certain things that are important to me. So first, um, I want to look at the, the authors themselves and see if they have a publication record, see if I can trace them in any particular manner. So if they have uh, you know, a Scopus ID or one of the other IDs, and then you click on it, 
if they have a nice long resume that's filled out, then I know that's probably a real often. They don't. If it's just if they just set up a, an account for themselves and there's nothing on there, I get suspicious immediately. Then I check the you know the the title and the keywords against other published recently published papers, especially with reviews. We get a lot of reviews that are basically the same exact review as two other reviews that were published within the last three years. And then I just I just send them back and say like this is not novel. This has already been done. And because you added one additional paragraph about one paper that came out last month, that doesn't make it novel. And then, you know, after that, it's it's a matter of whether or not the, the content of the paper is, is good enough to be published in our journal. So once that's decided, I have a group of executive editors, which are effectively the same thing as a senior editor, who will then manage that paper through the peer review process. And then they will submit their um, recommendation to me, and I make the final decision. So I usually do JCP first, and then I'll head over to Advanced Biology and do the same thing there. Uh, I also look for papers that have already got a recommendation to them. So if my EE has gotten the reviews back from the reviewers and they say it's good to go, then they'll tell me, I think this paper is pretty good. We should, you know, send it at least accept, ask them to revise it or accept it as is. And then we go from there. Once I get through all of my papers, then it's time to start, you know, communicating with people. So then I start reaching out to potential authors or for submissions. And right now, since I've only been on the job for about a month and a half, you know, your editorial board their primary job is to provide content and direction for the future um, goals of the journal. So because I'm brand new to the job, one of the first things I did was reach out to every person on our editorial board and say, let's sit down and have a Zoom conversation and talk about uh, whether or not you want to maintain your position on the editorial board. And if so, then I need to start seeing some papers coming from you. And I'd also like to hear from you about your thoughts for special issues and stuff like that. A lot of communication, a lot, a lot, a lot of communication. It seems like it's a lot of communication, but it seems fun because you get to interact with people in a different space. So do True. you ever find yourself um, talking about efforts around how can you make a special issue kind of more exciting? Like sometimes you have someone that says, I want to do a special issue on HIV, right? And then you're like, okay, that's cool. That's dear to your heart, like you said what makes it special. So like when you're thinking about commissioning for a special issue, how do you make sure that it's novel? What do you mean by the word novel? Well, what you want is something that hasn't been published already. So if it's a novel study, then there are no other studies with the same data out there. So this is not a, a reproduced study. Now, you know, in terms of the scientific method, we are supposed to reproduce the studies to make sure that they are reproducible and right. that the data is real. So I don't want to get rid of all papers that are like that. But if they bring, they come to me with a justification and say that this paper is a reproduction of a very controversial paper and we get the same results or better still, we didn't, that's going to get published. Yeah, that's going to get eyeballs. Um, now, in terms of the, the special issues, which was your initial question, you know, I have certain ideas out there, but coming from a kinesiology background, the folks that I'm working with on our editorial board and who send me uh, non-commissioned ideas for special issues, they're much better in terms of coming up with the initial idea. What my job is to to find an angle to make it a little, um, well, for lack of a better term, sexier for the, the general public and those in the field to want to actually read the papers in that special issue. The thing with special issues is that if you do too many of them, they become very non-special. They become kind of, you know, redundant issues so you, you have to find a particular angle. Um, and there's a number of different ways to do that. And the potential guest editors are usually coming to you with something. Gotcha. So 
you know, in terms of HIV, you, you, we, the thought of, of there being a vaccine was was driving research for 20 plus years. And it's still out there. There's no question, especially with the mRNA um, vaccines that are present. But where things have really shifted is, is you know, long-term treatment that's not nearly as caustic and uh, has nearly as many side effects as the, the cocktails in the past. We, you see advertisements on, on TV all the time, not just for people, for treating people who currently have HIV, but as prophylactics to prevent them from getting HIV. So we're to, for drugs that used to be very, very difficult to take for long-term are now being used for, as a preventative as opposed to using a condom. So they've really improved uh, the, the, the ability to take these medications long-term and to really make someone who has HIV live a relatively normal life for pretty much the, the, the normal lifespan that you would live. So that shift away from the idea of we need a cure to more like we're going to live with this as a chronic infection that's still manageable and you're not really going to pass it on to anybody else if you take these drugs, that's a magnum shift. It's a massive shift in the way that we see this disease. I remember growing up with this disease in the 80s. I'm not myself, but you know, growing up in the environment where it was taking place, it was a death sentence. The minute that you heard somebody had it, all the way through the 90s, that was a death sentence. How long they lived was the question. But now, I mean, it's not even something that people really concern themselves with, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but I think it's a, I think it's better than it being a death sentence for sure. So that particular you know, special issue, uh, that was something that someone broached to me is, what are the psychological impacts of taking these drugs in terms of, does it really, is there, is there the same level of stigma with taking these drugs now as there used to be 15 years ago? Are people able to actually connect with others at the same level as they could before they were taking these drugs, before they were HIV positive, as they could before? Has anything changed in those uh, places within the gay community, within the trans community, within the straight community, within the black, white, or whatever communities? And there's quite a bit of data out there that hasn't really com been compiled into uh, research papers, but it's an interesting topic. Okay, so that's really cool to know. Um, so thank you for explaining that. I was just curious about like how to like make a special issue novel, things like that. Um, one other thing that's really interesting to me is about moving science forward um, mm -hmm. kind of in inspiring ways. And I'm just curious about like, um, how do you move the, the science forward in a way that's really gonna be contributing to the larger community and not just your um, journal in particular? That's a tough one. And I'll, the, the reason why is that even if it's a society journal, there's still a dollars and cents component to what they do. So they have to make money. And that's 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 an unpleasant reality uh, that that we run into all the time because um, you know people want to think of these things as being altruistic in the nature of science, right? We're we're driven by the search for truth, which fundamentally we are. But if we can't turn the lights on, then we can't actually publish anything. So there is a level of, of revenue generation that has to take place where we actually have to print some papers that are not really all that incredible. But at the same time, not every paper can be incredible. You know, and so there's something to be said for building a huge foundation to support the scientific hypothesis that these build papers are built on. And then every once in a while, you get a really beautiful piece of fruit that's way up at the top of that tree, right? But it's tough. So have I felt frustrated? There are times where, you know, I, we're, you know we're gonna publish a paper on, on this topic again. I mean, we, we've covered this a lot. Uh, and, you know, when you change, so you see the things where, you know, 
one lab has done this same study in men 27 to 44, and now they're going to go 45 to 60. Ooh. But, you know, at the same time, you, you do need to cover all those bases, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they're going to pay a publication fee, so that's going to be fine. But, you know, not all not all labs are capable of doing science at the level that you're talking about. I'd say 5 to 10% maybe are capable of doing that. I can tell you this. So you know, when I was doing my postdoc, my particular project that I was working on was to see if CD4 cells, which are the ones that are affected by HIV, were capable of, of releasing a protease called uh, Granzyme B, which is it's, effect, it's, it's active in a number of processes, but the one it's most known for is obviously apoptosis, so directed apoptosis. And it's typically associated with CD8 killer T cells and NK cells, natural killer cells. But what's interesting is that if you activate helper T cells, they release gobs of CD4. Uh, if you infect them with HIV, they will release gobs of, C of, of granzyme B, I should say. And so what we found is that, you know, obviously the place where we have the most of our immune system is in our gut. Within a, within a week to 10 days of infection, regardless of the root of infection, HIV will go straight to the gut. And it seeds there and it just blows up the intestine. And from that point forward, you have leaky gut syndrome. So you have a streaming of bacterial products that come across and they keep the immune system active, which is exactly what HIV wants because it really replicates better in and infects better activated T cells. So how are these things connected? We thought that HIV, once it uh, infected CD4 T cells that were in the gut, they started to release granzyme B indiscriminately. And that started to chop up the proteins that hold the epithelial layer or the endothelial layer together, epithelial layer in the gut. And that allowed for the leaky gut to actually take place in the first place. Okay. So with that was the study we did and I worked with, I was looking at monkey tissue. So rhesus macaques um, and then uh, African green monkeys and sooty mangabees, which are um, the natural hosts of SIV. So what we saw was that the, the Asian monkeys that we use as human models for HIV infection, they respond the same way humans do. The African monkeys that have been with SIV for millennia, they've evolved, they've co-evolved with this virus. They didn't have nearly the same level of granzyme B release as did the African monkeys. But was what even more interesting was that if you look at the, the amount of CD4 protein that was expressed on the CD4 T cells in the two or the four species of monkeys, the two species of African monkeys have hardly any CD4 being expressed on the helpful T cells. Okay, so CD4 is the roots by which HIV or SIV gets into the cell in the first place. So these monkeys have co-evolved along with this virus to reduce the expression of that protein to let less of it get into their cells. It doesn't progress as far. That was a discovery that no one else had made. I made that first one, but I was damn lucky and I was working in one hell of a great lab. Right. There's, there's, that's, that's just a, a very rare occasion that you can get something that big that you discover that you can then find a, a journal to then publish. And then getting it published was tough because people didn't believe our results. Gotcha. So I very much appreciate the work that you do. I don't want to you know, pump you up too much, but I do at the same time is groundbreaking. You guys are doing groundbreaking stuff, but you're of, of the, the rarest of people. The vast majority of the labs out there are doing things that are altering the dial on scientific, um, creativity by just a hair, little teeny turns that they can actually manage to do because they don't have the resources. 
And in many instances, they don't have the level of creativity that you do. Now, I don't have the creativity either. That's why I'm not a researcher any longer. Uh, I got lucky. So there's a difference there as well. I mean, I could get lucky. I probably would never get lucky again in terms of research to have something that transcended come through and be published. The work that you guys do, the people that you guys are associated with, y'all do. And so it's 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 just like art. There's tons and tons and tons of music that gets released every year. There's tons and tons of books that gets released every year and movies. And maybe 5% of them are really good. Yeah. That you really want to watch and watch and watch and have in your collection. The rest of them, eh. I get what you're saying. Could you talk a little bit about the experience of how you work with individuals to be able to cultivate, you know, more higher quality, more impactful research? And then also at the same time, how do you maintain relationships in a way that allows for you to continue to create time to learn for yourself? Every editor is going to do their job in, in their own special way. I think I'm unique in the way that I do things and as much as I'm, I'm a pretty gregarious person. If all I did was sit there and read papers, it would drive me crazy. So I have to, for my own sanity, reach out to speak to people um, and develop relationships with people. So it's not really an altruistic thing in as much as I love to do this. Um, it keeps me fresh in the game also because I get to talk to you and a lot of other people about their science. So when I reach out to an editorial board member or I just email some scientists at random, I always open with the same thing. I want to hear what you're working on. I don't want to do any of the talking. I want to just sit there and listen to you. I want you to teach me about your science and then see if it's a good fit for us to, to have your work come to our journal. In my experience, and this is not unique to, to just scientists, people like to talk about the stuff that they're passionate about. You know, and so if you give them an audience, they're going to talk. What's different is that like if I went to a football coach or, or, or you know a musician, they're pretty used to talking about what they do on a regular basis. Scientists tend to be, you know, siloed. They're pigeonholed in their lab. And they're looking at that data. They don't really get a chance to interact with other people to talk about the things that they're passionate about. So if you give them the opportunity, and then also I'm educated enough that I know what they're talking about. Not exactly, but I, I understand science. Yeah. Right. So if you understand scientific design and then I look up, of course, I read some of their stuff before I sit down with them so I can have some sense as to what they're working on. I can ask some pertinent questions that, you know, is enlightening for them in as much as they know that they're talking to somebody who does actually care and is not just, you know, listening to something else in the other ear while they're talking. Gotcha. Uh, and so the, the likelihood is, number one, they're going to feel much more content and happy to send their work to me because I've given them an audience to talk about their work. So they know it's, they know it's not just going to a black hole where it's going to be published somewhere. And then once that's done, I'm, and I also make it abundantly clear, I don't want this to be a transactional relationship. So I don't want this to be a one-off. If that's what you want, I'm not going to bother you again. But if you want to you know, establish a relationship where maybe every six months to a year you send us a paper, I'm absolutely happy to do that. That's really what I'm looking for. And then once that's done, and I start seeing some Venn diagrams of the, you know, the interchanges between, or the cross sections or the intersections is the word I'm looking for between different researchers who I'm dealing with. I can connect those people just like I did with you and Chris Wiley, Yeah, you know, and I say, he's a mitochondria guy working on senescence and you're a mitochondria guy working on aging. Those things are very closely related. Right. Let's see if they have anything that they want to talk about. So I just put you two together in an email and I'll let y'all take it from there. And I do believe, did y'all at least apply for a grant or did you get it? So we're in the process of writing a grant together. We're almost ready to put together a paper about uh, kidney 
So they'll have a small portion of the of the paper around raw. So we're actually about to contact them after we finish revisions on a couple other papers right now. So, yeah, and, and 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 maybe we won't get that paper, but I bet in the future we might get another collaboration between the two of you. And so I've done my job, but then in an altruistic sense, I've also aided in the furthering of science because I connected to people who were not connected before. Right. Exactly. And I have an enormous Rolodex of individuals because we have all these people who submit their papers to us. And I get to pick and choose between them and then talk to additionally just random people that I find attractive in terms of their work. I can connect anybody I want. And so I get to play this wonderful matchmaking role, which has almost nothing to do with my actual job of commissioning content. Uh, but secondarily, at some point, I'm going to get some of those things back because I've done a good job and, and, uh, been, a, been a, a, a good mentor to the science that's being coming through. That's actually really, really cool. So I know that we've talked a lot about your science and the content, mm -hmm. like being an editor, but a couple other things I wanted to focus on before kind of getting into some other things is what kind of gaps do you see in the educational system? Like, and <laughs> where do, where do you kind of think that, you know, like science can kind of improve? Like, you know, what do you think? Where are the gaps in in science or then just the educational system? Uh, well, if you want to answer both, I'm happy to hear both. I don't know that I don't see any glaring gaps in science when it comes to science education. I think the, the country does a pretty good job in terms of its science education and STEM education. We've emphasized it a great deal. Where I see that we have problems now. I was a professor at a full-time professor of four schools, one of which was a state institution that was North Texas. I was there for one semester before I, I stopped. Prior to that, I was at three different Catholic schools, all of which were Hispanic-serving institutions, all of which did a you know a very good job of making sure that we taught to, recruited in and taught to minority students, Black and Hispanic predominantly, but did quite a few Asians at UIW as well, a lot of Vietnamese students. And... By and large, at all three institutions, there was what I call the quiet racism of low expectations, where they where people we use these key terms, you know, special. That's one term that gets used all the time. The students at this institution are really special, which of course is nonsense. They're just the same as every other institution's students, which is not a bad thing. The worst thing you want to be is special. No one wants to be special because that what that really means is slow, unintelligent. You know, they're behind the curve. And so there's this idea that we have to coddle people. We have to lower the bar intellectually to their level. And I don't I don't play that game. I think that's nonsense. That's not how you get ahead in life. Now, if we took that same person and we put them in an athletic state or status, right? We put them in a team, even at the small schools where I taught, no coach would ever accept that idea we have to like dumb down our athletic expectations if we have any thought of winning. So why we don't do it in, in athletics, when we do do it in academics makes absolutely no sense. I come from an athletic background. I am a huge jock. I always have been. I've always straddled the line right between the meatheads and the scientists. Right. And, I, and I enjoy that. And all the scientists who were ever worth a damn in my life would never have accepted being told that they were special or that they had to have the bar lowered so that they could accomplish anything. They're all about the challenge. And so every class that I've ever had, I've had students who were way, way, way behind. And I set the bar at the same damn level as I always did. And I spent a whole lot of time with those students, dragging them up to that level. Now the motivated students made it, 
but there's ones that are not they don't um and but you're never going to get ahead as a society not just in our country but as a global society if expectations are set low particularly we don't we really don't do that with white students we really don't do that with white students we do with black and hispanic students predominantly we don't do with asian students actually asian students typically are the highest expectations that we typically have in my experience whites come next and then black and hispanic are way down and that's just insane to me because i do in general expect kids that come from a lower socioeconomic rank to not perform as well when they first get in the class but by the time they finish they need to at least be up to the b level and i'll do everything i can to drag them up there so there's a laziness that's inherent within the professors themselves that they don't want to have to do that extra work. So then they're going to give tests that are all multiple choice. And they're going to give credit for stuff like, you know, the 10% of your grade is attendance. That's just insane. I don't get a 10% bonus because I show up for work. You know, the, the folks that I see out in Texas, which is where I'm from, all the Hispanic dudes that are lined up for his day laborers, they don't get a 10% bonus because they showed up for work. They get what they get their wage for that day. And if they don't show up for work, they don't get paid. Yeah. So that's not how the real world works. So to, to make it be this, this false idea of, you know, all you have to do is show up to get one letter grade, that's, that's crippling those people for life, as far as I'm concerned. Unfortunately, that is a, a sentiment that is growing and expanding throughout all these different universities. I went and interviewed for, at their request, um, an adjunct position, and when I got the syllabus, it said on there and bold print letters 10 percent of your greatest attendance and when i asked the department chair do we have to do this or is this something just the, the last professor did now the provost is very interested in having them get credit for attendance that is just insane at a school like smu where you pay 50 some thousand dollars to go to that school and they're going to give you a, a whole letter grade just for sitting your butt down in class so those are the things that I see that are a problem in terms of education as a whole. Um, we've watered it down and made it too simple. Some of this is the crisis of colleges not having enough students who need, who want to attend college anymore, and I don't blame them uh, because I don't think they, that especially at a private institution, you get your money's worth, and I've worked at a lot of them. There is a huge competition for students since there's fewer of them coming through the, the colleges. And so in order to keep them and make them happy, we water down the education. I guess I, I don't think about that very much based upon the school that I'm at. So I think mm -hmm. a lot of times just if you're here, you're here. I never I never thought about it like that. That's interesting. It, you may uh, not do it at Vanderbilt. I hope not. I hope that, that yeah. you guys handle your education more like I do. And yeah. let me tell you, there's plenty of professors out there who do it the right way. Yeah. Who Here's an example. Here's one thing that, that is critical to the educational process that is being left behind, and that's writing. Gotcha. You have to be able to write. You have to be able to speak. You have to be able to read and understand and comprehend. And all of that comes from the same process, and that's writing. Right. Whether it's by hand, whether it's on a computer, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to write. And so multiple choice is garbage. In multiple choice, they're literally giving you the answer. You just have to figure out which of the four ones it is, but they're giving you the answer. Yeah. You're not being asked to think about anything. You're not being asked to look at data and interpret data. You're just being asked, you know, what, what is the, the, the this term? Pick it out. That's not an education. I know what you mean. I mean, 
at my graduate school experience where I did my PhD, everything was essay or interpreting a paper or right. multiple papers. Even yeah. even like even my um my undergrad degree at my historical black college, I don't know what they're exactly doing now, but when I was there, um there was a chair and vice chair. And um, what they decided to do was actually upper division was all essay. There would be very few like multiple choice. Um, and then like, you know, lower division, there was, you know, like fill in the blank, if you will, you know, like some multiple choice and like maybe one or two essay questions. But as it evolved, they got you ready for the PhD or your MD because you would have to change those particular things. And it was really interesting. Um, it was something that, you know, like it helped raise the bar. And we actually had a scientific writing course that was mm -hmm. required. And we actually had, I think it was, you had to do at least two of the three intensive research experiences. So they actually had like a, like a class where you actually did investigation or research. So I don't mm -hmm. think like this is, you know, it's really good. Um, I think at Vanderbilt, like, I guess I'm used to that. So I actually never, actually never thought about that. Uh, you know, like in that traditional sense, I'm just kind of used to like, okay, everything is blank and you're supposed to be filling everything out. Like we give you like an essay question or we give you like some data plus this and you fill it out. That's what we do. Like that's even, that's even how like I'm designed to think, but I had forgotten. And it's an important point to kind of bring up that not every school uh, does things the same way. No, no, they don't. And, and, and I wish there were more schools like Vanderbilt in the country. Now there's the, you know, there is a triage that happens when you have a class of 78, you know, or something like that. But even then, so that was my AP courses at UIW. I had students from all across the university because I had, we had tons of them were, were nursing, so were pre-nursing students. We had a lot of students who were going to go into med school. We had a lot of students from kinesiology, so pre-PT. I had a responsibility to get them ready for those particular professions. And so I couldn't do all writing. So I did a, quite a, there were multiple choice in it, but there was one essay and I made it three essays and I would randomize the test. So it wasn't the exact same, but I would tell them beforehand. I would even tell them beforehand. These are the three essay topics that are going to be on there. And you're going to have to write one in class so you can't cheat, but go research it now. Here's the question. And I would read out, here's question number one. Here's question number two. Here's question number three. You're going to get one of these three at random. Know what they are. And they would blow it out of the water because they would, they would actually write good essays by the end of the semester. So there's all sorts of creative ways that people can do these jobs if they decide not to be lazy. And that's really what it comes down to. Gotcha. That's interesting. Oh, wow. You're making me think about some other things that I haven't really kind of like thought about, which is good. Uh, that's what the podcast for, for other people to think about things, but also me now too. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that I also want to talk about is how can scientists improve science communication? A lot of times we focus really <laughs> on, you know, publishing our science, but we don't convey it to individuals that don't really have an extensive science background. And I think that it's doing a disservice to everybody. And I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about how we can improve that. Look at shows like one of my favorite shows growing up was Nova on PBS. Oh. That was a great show. And it still is a great show. And so you took these really complex scientific ideas and you didn't dumb them down by any stretch. You just changed the language. And, and you change the, the, the interface, right? You, you made it more palatable to the eye. You're telling a story. And science, you know, all scientists will do the same thing, and they should, is, you know, what's the story on this paper? Tell the story. Because when you're reading something, what you want to hear is a story. I want to hear the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, and the end of the story. The same thing is true for science. The problem with science 
is that it's so jargon heavy, which is true for any industry. And the further into it you go, the more acronyms you use, the more jargon you use, the further into your silo and down your rabbit hole you go, you can't really see the forest for the trees. You're, you're just deep, deep, deep in it. And so that's very unappealing to the lay audience because they're not really following you in any way, shape, or form. You have to put it into a context that they can understand. The, the best way to do this, I think, is to take the things that make you so excited about it and then put it in language that you would explain it to a child. Yeah. Yeah? And then make it into pictures that, that would make a child understand this. And then that's the same exact stuff that you need for adults. And again, it is not dumbed down by any stretch, but you're just making it into something that's not just palatable. It's actually quite flavorful to consume science when it comes through from a person who has passion. So when I ask people to, to convey this in a different way and get rid of the jargon, I ask them, look, just take the passion you have for it and use the language that you would to explain this to your family members or your friends, and then write that. And we'll go from there. And then in terms of where to put these things, I don't know that they're necessarily appropriate for a science journal per se, but there are other places like Scientific America, I mean, a number of different types of journals which are at the intersection between the lay audience and the actual science the scientists themselves. You reach out to those folks and say, oh, look, I've got a really hot topic that I'd like to do. There's a million podcasts that are out there like the one you're doing now where people need content and, and you can be the one to actually bring out this new hot idea. Um, it just takes a bit of, of elbow grease in terms of actually, you know, going out to press the flesh and meet people uh, and then conveying a hot idea. And if you don't really have the creativity to do it yourself, partner with somebody who does. Yeah, that's right. But don't, don't just give up on the idea. Find some people who have a strength that you don't and then give them the strength that you do. And then there's, there's a win-win situation for everyone. I definitely agree. And then for you all that don't know about Nova, Nova is a, uh probably the most popular American uh, science television show, and it's hosted by PBS. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's been on for, four, no, 50 seasons, I think. Uh, so so that's it. So that would be 73? Yeah, that's yeah. about right. Yeah, uh, it's about 50 seasons. So just for everybody that knows. And I think it's won, like, some Peabody Awards and then also a couple of primetime Emmys as well. Um, so it's a very popular show, everybody. So you should check it out. That's like a unselfish plug for that. So I, I'm just curious more about like, not only about like the science, but talking about what you do in your spare time for fun. And then I noticed that you're an author that you kind of post that up there on your LinkedIn page. Cause you, could you tell us a little bit more about that? If you don't mind. Not at all. All right. So one of the things I do for fun is to write. I like to write. Uh, that's how I got into, into publishing and, and how they get into being a journal editor. But uh, for fun, I, like I told you, I'm an athlete. So whatever my uh, desire to do in terms of competition at any time in my life shifts all the time. So right now I'm, I'm in a bodybuilding phase. So I'm, I'm trying to put on a little bit more muscle mass. But I just got back from a bike ride with my daughter. We're in Houston right now. So we rode around Allen Parkway and we just came back and I sat down for this. Uh, my daughter is a swimmer. I was a swimmer. My wife is a runner. We're an active family. And so when we have an opportunity to go out and do stuff, so we, before here in Houston, we were in Austin for three days. Uh, we went to Barton Springs and swam in the really cold water twice. And I took another ride around Zilker Park. Activity is a big deal. So I like to do that. Um, I like to cook meals and get together with our friends. I like drinking bourbon. Uh, I very much enjoy that. Um, and then, 
in terms of my writing, I've published two books. Uh, the first one is called Exercise Eat Enough, and it's about well, it's about HIT training specifically, high intensity interval training, and the benefits of that versus endurance training. But the real crux of the story talks about how our diet has changed dramatically in the last 50 years uh, to, to eating a lot more processed foods that have made our nation rather fat. And I contrast that with an uh, indigenous tribe in Tanzania called the Hadza, H-A-D-Z-A. And they are as close to Paleolithic man as we're going to get on the planet, them and several other tribes. But they're definitely hunter-gatherer tribes. Uh, and looking at their behavior in terms of, number one, their diet, and then two, their daily activities versus a Western culture. <laughs> and contrasting those two and showing how people, the primary thing that you need to do is change your diet. Because diet always trumps exercise when it comes to either weight loss or just general health. But obviously exercise is, is also very important for longevity as well. Uh, the second book is called The Swim Prescription, where I contrasted the, the, the differences between swimming and any land-based activity because swimming is, I think, somewhat better in terms of the, the benefits that you get from it. And then I'm working on another more controversial book right now, which is called In Defense of Doping, where I go through all the different kinds of uh, you know, cheating that athletes can do with drugs and justify some of them, kind of, uh, and others completely justify, like, if uh, I don't know if you know who Shikari Richards is. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, when she was when she was disqualified from the 2020 Olympics because she smoked or she ate some marijuana the night before, that's just a criminal offense, in my opinion. That that THC could be possibly considered a performance enhancing drug. So that'll all be in the book. You'll see that come out sometime in the spring. That's interesting. So I have multiple points. So the first one's about that. She she's making sort of a comeback, if you will. She is. Uh, she ran a 10.71, I think, and then. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's uh, Shelly and, uh, uh, gosh, Frazier. She got a 10.65 for the year. So mm -hmm. that was very, very interesting. I think there was a showdown with another Jamaican that was in um, Oregon, if I'm not mistaken, and she had won that meet. And then she mm -hmm. sent out for a couple other meets to kind of make sure this race would happen. So I think she's doing both the 100 meter and the 200 meter. So she's been kind of talking about it a little bit. So it's actually pretty cool that... Uh, you know, you're talking about that. And I think it's an important issue because I think that at that time she was at the height of what she could do and she needed mm -hmm. that, especially because of what had happened in her family. Um, and so, I mean, oh, the, the story is traumatic. It, it's, it's just traumatic. traumatic. Yeah. So it's, it's something that is kind of like, you know, people cope in different ways and different cultures differently. And so it's something that I don't think is often um, looked at in that particular way. And I think that's what she was doing. And I don't think she meant any harm by it. Of course not. And she was she was not yeah. she was not enhancing her performance right. by having a little bit of THC in her system. That's not gonna help. If anything, it's gonna slow her down. So the the, the hypocrisy, as far as that's concerned, is just painful, especially considering she was in Oregon yeah. where it's legal. Yeah. But I I'll I'll go on and on about that in the book. Yeah, but that's all <laughs> I, uh, everybody you have to check out his book. And then just for everybody that knows the hot stuff. Is in northern Ten uh, in Tanzania, um, and they mm -hmm. mostly have, like you said, a um, uh, kind of a diet that's mostly uh, veggie based. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is there's a couple of uh, things around that diet where they talk about having a healthy microbiome. So, are you talking about it from that particular angle where they? Have oh yeah, 
or a healthier biome? Like, you know, like, could you spill oh. a about the book? Not too much because we want people oh, sure. to buy it and kind of check it out. Absolutely. And both those books are on, on Amazon, by the way. Um, the microbiome is, is heavily dependent upon the kinds of foods that we eat. Um, and so you can have a, a microbiome that's going to be more pathogenic in nature, which can have impacts on your mood, <laughs> your your cognitive abilities. All of these things can change dramatically. And you said that they're more veggie-based, which is partially true. It depends on the time of the season. The men definitely hunt for meat, but the, the base of their diet is going to be plant-based. Gotcha. Um, they eat a lot of a root called baobab. Uh, and actually, it's not really a root. It's a seed that they get off of a tree and then they crush up and they kind of make a smoothie out of it. But they may eat lots of tubers too. The huge difference between their diet and our diet, the biggest of all, is the quantity of fiber that they consume. All right. Fiber uh, is probably around 15% of the diet, and it's really maybe not more than 2% of the American diet. But it has a huge impact on the microbiome. It is basically giving food to the bacteria that we have resident in our gut. And if we provide them with more fiber, we get a shift away from more pathogenic types of bacteria, more towards these commensal types of bacteria that assist us in maintaining mood status and overall health. And fiber is an easy thing to get. You don't have to do very much to get it. I mean, leafy green vegetables, uh, the, the the skins of potatoes and other um, and apples and other types of fruits like that. It's easy to do. And the thing is, like, if you go out and ask the average American, doesn't matter what race they are or what their socioeconomic rank is, what's one thing that you should do to improve your diet? Just one thing. 95% of people will immediately answer, eat more fruit and vegetables. They know. Yeah. And then it's a question of why don't you do this? So I just don't like them. So then change your mind. All right. Change your mind. That's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, like that's something that like I'm doing now is like, uh, I was like, you know, taking and thinking about new positions and things and, you know, new opportunities. So I just kind of want to get like super healthy in this space. So that's actually, I've been actually eating more fiber. Uh, <laughs> so it's actually really cool because I've been adding a lot of chia seeds and, um, black seeds to like my yogurts in the morning with my bananas. So it's actually interesting that you mentioned that. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody, please get more fiber in your diet. More fiber. That's uh, right. Some more of everything else. And then I also do want to have like one other question to kind of talk about a little bit is like, how can you fit fitness into science? A lot of times people think that you can only do like the science, but they don't focus on that. You have to have health as well. So could you talk a little bit about that? How you fit, put fitness into science? Yeah, because a lot of times people only do the science. Like, for example, I have a postdoc that has started the hashtag scientists who lift. And he does a lot with uh, like lifting and he talks the importance of doing health, right? And like him and my grad student and my other postdoc, uh, they all work out extensively all the time to make sure that they have like a very balanced type of situation. And they've been sure the rest of us to be more balanced. Uh, and so it's really good. Um, but the thing is that I've noticed in science, a lot of people only sleep, eat, and, you know, crap science, and that's it. That's not, it's not just in science. That's in all industries. It's a very Western thing. What I say about exercise is find something that you actually enjoy doing. Don't try to do something that you're you're having to do for the first time and you're not really going to like, because then you're going to drop out. The next thing is, if you are if you are a social type of person and it's easier for you to get things done in a social setting, get into a group of people who are doing something that you enjoy doing. And then that way there's a level of accountability in as much as if you don't show up, they're going to harass you to make sure you do it the next time. 
If you're not a social person, then don't try to do that because it's going to scare you off. Just go out for your long walk or your long ride or your long run or swim or whatever, but do something. Get out and get active. It's so not hard to, to increase your level of activity. I mean, there's there was a study, what was it? Three second workouts three times a week have some benefits to improving your, your muscular strength. I read the paper. I'm a little skeptical about it still, but it's true. You don't have to do a ton. That's the idea of HIIT training is it reduces the duration of the actual workout to maybe 30 minutes, but you do a really high intensity workout. If you're trying to get off the ground and just get started, pay somebody to help you write the workout so you don't have to think about what to do. You just show up, do what they tell you to do and go home. That's the beauty of having a coach. I agree. So then my last question to you is, out of all the things that you do to stay active, what is your favorite thing that you do? I love lifting weights. I love riding bikes. In terms of a fun activity to do, I love going out to the club on a Friday night and dancing my ass off. Excuse my French. But, I mean, there's there's few things that I get more pleasure out of than hitting the club and just dancing, dancing, dancing. I'm not the kind of guy who goes to the club and just kind of like hangs around the periphery and sips on his drink all night long. I'm just sweating, sweating, sweating on the dance floor all the time. So if you enjoy dancing, find a place to dance. Find a type of dance that you like to do and go dance. Dance is great exercise. And it's 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 right around the 50th anniversary of the invention of hip-hop. I think it was yesterday. I mean, what a better way to celebrate than to go out dancing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely agree. And thanks for being on the podcast, man. We really appreciate it. And everybody, please go check out Hutch's books. Uh, and he, like he said, they're on Amazon. And dance. Enjoy yourself and do something that you love to do and exercise. And just don't only think about the science. And I hope that you know a little bit more about editors and how friendly they are. Maybe you should approach them uh, so that you can check out some of the things that are going on at JCP or Advanced Bio or Aging Cell. And hopefully you can uh, submit it to either of these journals or all of, all of them are great. So please do it. Thank you.